And tonight as we look at Psalm 145, we're going to look at uh, a psalm of praise. This is actually the only psalm uh, in the entire Psalter that's designated such, a psalm of praise. Kind of an interesting thought when we think about what the psalms are and the amount of praise that is normally found within them, right? This is the only one that actually has that title. There's actually a collection of psalms uh, of David. It starts in 138, and it moves through 145, and it's actually the last psalm that's attributed to David as well. Um, it's the last one in the entire Psalter, and some believe that this is kind of like the, the crowning achievement, sort of. Some scholars would say that, that all of the previous psalms lead up to this, and that's why it has this special designation of a psalm of praise. And so this is actually an acrostic psalm as well, just like Psalm 119 that we've looked at for the last, I don't know how many weeks we were in as we broke that down, right? All 178 verses, I think. So as we go through this psalm, each verse is going to begin with a word, and each word is going to begin with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dal, all the way down, just like we've done through Psalm 119. Um, but there's actually one verse missing, and we'll, we'll get to that as we, uh, as we head into it. And so the message is titled, A Psalm of Praise, and you might say, well, Alex, that's very original, because that's the title that's at the psalm <laughs> right here in the Bible, right? But it's interesting to point out, as I said, it's the only one that's actually given that title specifically in here, but that, that phrase, a psalm of praise, actually a single Hebrew word, and that word is tehillah, means a, a psalm of praise, or praise more specifically, and that's actually the name of the entire book of Psalms. If you recall, when we first started through the book of Psalms back in the beginning, we did a little intro, but I'll share a little bit more on that. Um, but the entire book is actually called Tehillim. So the, the plural version of Tehillah is the collection of Psalms. That's the Hebrew word for it. I'm just reading from some notes here. It says, the English title Psalms comes from the Greek title Psalmoi, which was already established by the time of the New Testament. Luke actually references this twice where he quotes, it is written in the book of Psalms. Psalmoi translates the Hebrew word mizmor, a psalm, both having to do with the song sung to an accompaniment of stringed instruments, giving us an initial insight into the nature of this book. It is a collection of songs of which most, if not all, formed part of the life of worship of God's people. The Hebrew title for the book, Tehillim, which gives us a further insight into the book's nature, Despite the many psalms of lament and disorientation, the Psalter's overall message is that praising God is the desired mode in which people should strive to live. That's the overarching message, and it's finally culminated here in Psalm 145 with this title. So we might gloss over that and just go, oh, it's a psalm of praise, until we understand that, yes, this is the only one, that, yes, this word has a special meaning, and it's important for us to see that. So let's read through Psalm 145. I'm going to ask if you guys would all stand as we read through this. 21 verses, so we're going to go real quick, right? Everyone's going to read real quick, because I only got 40 minutes left. Psalm 145, verse 1. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. 
They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and he will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. You guys can have a seat. Father, thank you for this time and this opportunity as we get to really soak in a beautiful psalm of praise that you have written through the pen of David, Lord. Thank you for your mighty word. Thank you for what it does in our life. Thank you that we get to call upon you, that we have an opportunity to praise you. Such a great and awesome and powerful God, Lord. Yet you have called us your own. You have called us your people and you provide a way for us to have fellowship with you. What an incredible blessing, Lord. Would you be with us tonight, Father? Open our hearts, our ears, our minds to hear what you would uh, want us to hear, Lord. And may you speak through me, Lord, your words that you have for your church tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this really is a beautiful psalm, and I will do my best to not go too in deep. I kind of really want to let this psalm speak for itself. And while it was long, I really wanted to read this out together with you guys. Um, there's just such beauty into it. Um, as we dive in, uh, you'll notice in verse 1 and verse 2, and then all the way in verse 21, there's a theme that starts and ends with, and it's kind of a fourfold theme here. And that theme is, one, David will bless, two, he will praise, three, the name of the Lord, and lastly, he will do it forever and ever. And that's repeated in here a couple times. It's kind of sandwiched. And then in the middle, this psalm is really how that's lived out when we're supposed to praise him, how we're supposed to praise him, why we're supposed to praise him. We're going to get to see all of those things here. Verse 1 says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. If you have a new international or new living, it will say, I will exalt you, my God, O King. The Hebrew word is found here, and it's also in Psalm 30, verse 1, which says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and you have not let my enemies rejoice over me. The root word here means to be high, to be exalted, to lift up, to rise. That's what David here is doing. And he says, my God, my God, O King, right? This mighty, powerful God that we should come to humbly and, and with great reverence, with fear and trembling even, right? But yet he's a personal God. And this my God term here really kind of denotes David's relationship. And we'll get into a little bit more. Most of you guys know the story of David's life and all that he went through. He says, I will bless your name forever and ever. 
The word bless is the word barak, and it means to bless, but specifically to kneel, to actually get down. It's a posture that's associated with that blessing. So it's a posture of the heart, but there's a physical posture as well for those that come to the Lord. Both of the last two times that I taught, we were in Psalm 95 and Psalm 113, and interestingly enough, that word was repeated multiple times in both of those psalms, and again here. So uh, maybe the Lord's trying to tell us something about how we need to know. Maybe he's trying to tell me something about how I need to come to him when I bless him. But essentially, he's talking about lifting up God and then kneeling down. It's like he's saying, I will, I will lift up your name and I will bow down to you every day. And the tenses, actually, of this verb, too, is a little interesting. Instead of just saying that as a command, it's kind of this, uh, this hopeful wish that he has. It could maybe better be translated as, let me extol you, my God, O King, or may I bless your name forever and ever. It's a hope, it's a wish, it's a deep desire of his heart more than it is just something that he intends to do. Verse 2 says, every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day. Do we praise God in that same way? On a daily basis? God forbid a day should ever go by that we don't praise him. And that can be simply for who he is. Right? We don't necessarily praise him just for what he does for us. And while he does great things for us, that's not our motivation. And that's not really the command that we're given. Interesting, as we think of this idea of kneeling down, I believe I asked this in one of the previous messages, but I would ask, do you ever do that? Do I ever do that? Probably not as much as I should, right? But as we look to the Bible, we can see great men in the Bible that all did that. We know David did that, of course, right? But we know that there were many other men as well. Daniel knelt down and he prayed after uh, the king Darius had issued a decree to say that no one was allowed to bow down or to pray to another god except for him. What does he do? He goes on his rooftop and he goes out, he faces Jerusalem and he, he kneels down and he prays. Solomon as well, David's son, as he's uh, inaugurating the, the temple and they're, uh, they're doing a dedication he gets down on his knees and he prays, we're told, Second Chronicles 6. And even Paul, in at least two places that we know of, in Ephesians and also in Acts, he, he gets down on his knees in reverence as he prays to God. In Acts 20, as he's bidding the church of Ephesus farewell, he knows it's the last time that he'll see them, and he gets down on his knees and they pray together. It's a beautiful picture. And then we know that Jesus, of course, did the same, our great master and teacher, the one that we should follow. As he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, right, he bows down on a rock, and he, or he kneels down, excuse me, and he prays to God, and he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. We know that it didn't end that way, but we can learn a lot from what he modeled and what these other great men of the Bible modeled for us. And so again, every day I will bless you, says David, likely referring to his time here on earth, but then he goes on to say... I will praise your name forever and ever. The time of praise that we have here on earth is just kind of like the dress rehearsal, right? For the praise that will happen in heaven, for the eternity that we will have, praising him for his greatness, right? We'll be just like him. We'll be able to be just like David. We'll be praising the Lord forever and ever. Warren Wearsby says, in heaven, we shall praise the Lord forever and ever. But now is the time to get prepared as we praise him day to day. No matter how dark and difficult the day may be, there is always something for which we can praise him. 
even if it is only that our situation is not always this bad. So again, this is not conditional, right? We are supposed to praise him. It's, it's kind of a full stop. God is great. Praise him. That's it. Verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The NIV says his greatness no one can fathom. So he's highly to be praised, right? To be praised is, is the word hallel from where we get hallelujah, we talked about before. And it's worthy, he is worthy of praise, right? And that praise looks like our, our commending, our, our boasting even, talking about him, this idea of, of hallel. And the greatness is unfathomable. The dictionary defines that as being or seeming to be without limits, unfathomable. God is great and without limits, something that we can't comprehend as mere men. Many of you guys might be aware that the word fathom is actually used as a unit of measure um, for measuring the depths of the sea. So rather than just saying feet, uh, I believe it's six feet as a fathom, and they can measure it that way and say the ocean is you know, so many fathoms deep. That's an interesting concept because in Job 11, uh, one of Job's friends um, is, is speaking to him, and this idea of, of the word uh, unfathomable or unsearchable, right? That's the same word that we see here in Job, and it refers to the depths. Job 11.7 says, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? And then, of course, we can think of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways, higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So God's greatness can't be put in a box, right? We can't contain it and understand it and try to fit it into the mold of our minds so that we can understand it. As great as we think his greatness is, it's, it's greater still, right? It's beyond measure. It's beyond comprehension. He is great. Amen? Amen. 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 And as we look at uh, verses 4 through 9 here, it kind of starts a, a new section. We just heard about God's greatness, really just for who he is. But now we're going to get into why. We're going to see it's because of his mighty acts. We're going to see that it's because of his great attributes. Verse 4 says, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Praise your works to another. So the idea here is a little bit different than the last word that we saw for praise, which was hallel. This Hebrew word is shabach, and it can mean to praise, to commend, or to glory, just like hallel does. But it's a verb, and it has a, another interesting way that it's used two different times in the Psalms in 65 uh, 7 and an 89 9. It's actually used of God stilling the sea. I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. How does God still the sea by, by praising it? But that word praise means to address in a loud tone, and it can also mean to pacify as if by words. It's kind of an interesting thought. We know that God quiets the seas, Psalm 65, Psalm 89. And then in Mark 4, we know that Jesus quiets the storm, the wind and the waves. He and the disciples are heading on a boat onto the other side of the Sea of Galilee where they'll encounter a demon-possessed man. And as they're, they're on the way, it says, and he got up and he rebuked the wind and the sea, this is Jesus, and said to them, hush, be still. 
And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And an interesting thought came to me as I was studying this, this idea of the praises of God and God using that to calm and to still, using his voice as this authority, this, this commanding uh, voice to calm the raging seas. And I tried to understand it from our perspective. What does that look like for us, right? So the calming of the sea in Mark 4 was, was a mighty act, we could say, right? It was clearly a miraculous act, a work of God. And then we're also told that we're supposed to declare the mighty acts of God from one generation to another. Why do we do that? Why do we declare those acts? One thing I thought of is maybe it's because they can calm the storms in our life. When we think back to what God has done previously in our life, it brings us a reassurance, right? We experience rough seas, high waves, no matter what would come our way, a storm in our life, we can be calm through the reminders of what God has done in past storms in our lives. We can be assured that he will continue to work in great and mighty ways, both now and in the future, no matter what storm may come. The God's work can have a calming presence in our lives, and the faithfulness of his words bring us a blessed assurance. So it's good to tell of God's great works, Right? It's good to tell others about what he has done. And it's really an important task that we've been given, not just here, but many other places in Scripture. We see the importance of this. If you guys are with us uh, on Sundays, a few weeks ago, as we were in Exodus and we started chapter 10, we saw God speaking to Moses as he was about to unleash the plague of locusts. And he says, I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart, and here is why. Do you remember what that was? He says, so that I may perform my mighty deeds. That's one. And the next is so that you, Moses and the Israelites, may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God has a purpose for us telling the next generation. So why else could it be? that we need to hear this. I would argue that we often forget, right? Anyone else? Do we forget what God has done in our lives? No one's brave enough to raise their hand, but I know you all for, have forgotten some things at times. Brother Bert, I got a thumbs up, so I don't know if that's good or bad, but if we can't remember those things in our own lives, how are we going to remember what God's done in past generations, Right? We need to constantly be reminded and be told of what's going on. Back to this idea of God calming a storm in your life, right? How often do we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, and what do we do? We cry out, oh, Lord, help me, save me. I need you this time. It's going to be different. I'm going to follow you this time, right? And then what happens? He saves us out of the storm. We go about our way. We forget about him. We forget about what he does. We go back to our old ways. We go back to our old life. And the cycle continues, right? Sadly. The cycle continues for many. But we are told to tell of these things, God's great works, his mighty acts, to pass on the story, to tell the future generations, to remind them. And we know that the Israelites ended up doing this uh, a little bit later in Exodus in chapter 12, which we'll be arriving to shortly on Sundays. That's where the Passover is commanded. And right before God actually comes and passes over 
the Israelite households with the blood on the doorpost. As he's giving the, uh, the command and the instructions, he says, now this day, Exodus 12, 14, will be a memorial to you. A memorial. Remember it, he's saying, right? Mark this day. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for how long? Throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And most of you know that this annual celebration is still happening today, right? The Passover. The Passover Seder has happened. You guys have maybe joined us here on a Wednesday night. We've had Rabbi Robert come from uh, Temple Beth Shalom. And it's a really a, a beautiful picture uh, that's woven into this, this dinner, this meal, and this kind of ceremony, if you will, right? You can recall some of the foods that are on that Seder plate. They all have a purpose. The, the lamb shank bone to um, you know, honor the Passover lamb that was to be slain. There's salt water that represents the, uh, the bitter tears of the Israelites as they were under slavery and under bondage. There's a, a mixture of fruit and nuts ground up in this little paste, and it symbolizes the mortar that the Israelites would have been using along with the bricks as they were doing various building projects. And this really has great intent, right? For the Jewish people, they're passing on the story of what God did, how he saved them with his mighty hand from the Egyptians, from the slavery, from the bondage. And every year this happens, right? Even the 10 plagues are counted out. One at a time, they, they list them so as to not forget what happened. And usually the male figure head of the household is the one that leads this meal and this dinner. And it's very much a family affair with children participating. And there's certain things that they do, uh, breaking the, the bread and hiding it. And they, they go and they run and they, they look outside the door and see if Elijah's coming back, right? But it's very participatory, which is neat. But the whole goal is so that they pass on this history. They pass on the mighty deeds of the Lord. But then if you remember what happens later in Exodus, well after in chapter 24, God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai and he's going to give him the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets and he, he gives him the instructions for the tabernacle and how the ceremonies and the sacrifices are supposed to be performed. And while he was up there, uh, he was up there for a lot of chapters from 24 to 32. And in chapter 32, after the 40 days and 40 nights that he's supposed to be up there, the Israelites down below said, I don't know what happened to this guy. I think he's gone. And I think God forgot about us. So we need to make another God. And what did they do? They erected the golden calf and they started to worship. Why? Well, we're told it's because they forgot about God and they forgot about what he did. And when that happens in our lives, we often go astray and we often go chase after other things, idols and various other things that would take our focus off of God. So that's why it's important. And in reality, I think it's safe to say that we're not that different, right? Any other brave souls willing to raise their hand and say that it's so easy for us to forget God's works, to go astray, to wander off. Maybe we don't have a, a physical golden calf, but maybe there's something else in our life that we turn to that we decide to worship instead of God. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we're going to look... Um, and a little bit of a warning that's issued. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning of the Old Testament, fifth book of the Bible. Chapter 8, we'll pick it up in verse 11. It says, Beware that you do not forget your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes 
which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. That's the great temptation that we all face. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. It shall come about that if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of your God. Let me just take a moment and ask you guys, how are you doing in this department of sharing the mighty deeds of God from one generation to the next? Are you telling of his glory? Are you telling your children if you have them? Are you telling your grandchildren, nieces, nephews? I have an almost one-year-old, so I read this now very differently than I would have, let's say, a year ago. There's children here upstairs learning tonight. There's so many ways that we can pour into children in our lives. And are you doing that? And kind of, kind of just bluntly say to fathers, are you doing that? You've been given the main responsibility and the main charge to pass that on to your children and on to the future generations. I think if we look around this country and our society and what's going on in the world, you could probably all bear witness that this great nation that once was a little more strong and solid on Christian values has wavered. Would you agree? Could we say that by and large it's because people have forgotten God? And could that be perhaps because people have forgotten to tell about God? You know, there's a, a threat that we face, really, in the church, it said, that in just one generation, the church could be extinct, the local church. Now, we know that ultimately God has power and he's watching over his church and, you know, he's, he's not going to let that happen to an extent that it's wiped out and that it goes away and that it ceases to exist. But we can see what happens. I think we've seen the evidence when churches fail to share with the next generation, when they fail to prepare. Now, I know that we've been given the command to train up our children in the way, we should, in the way they should go, right? And that's not always a guarantee that it's going to work out. So I'm not saying this is a magic plan or a magic formula, but it's important. It's commanded of us, right? We are supposed to do these things. Isn't it scary to think of the fate of the church? Imagine what our parents thought or grandparents back then, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, concerned at what the fate of the church would look like. I would imagine that what's happening today, they never thought that they would see in their lifetime. They never thought that it would happen to the church, but it's happening, and we need to be on guard for that. 
We need to be active in living out 2 Timothy 2.2, a verse that's really directed to leaders and, and pastors to a sense, but in a broader sense to all of us. It says, these things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. We have to pass the baton. We have to pass the torch or the torch will go out. And who knows what will be in store for the church, especially in this nation in the coming years. And so again, I put it back to us. Are we doing that? Are we being faithful with the command that we've been given? Am I being faithful with the command that I've been given? And not just the mighty acts in this book, while they are great and mighty and we need to tell about them, what about the personal great and mighty acts that God's performed in your life? I know everyone in here has got at least one, right? And I can think of that one is the fact that God saved you. Is that not a mighty act? He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If that's not a mighty act, I don't know what is. Are you telling other people about it? Are you going out? Are you sharing? That's evangelism, right? 101, sharing your testimony. The great and mighty works that God has done in your life. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? When was the last time you did declare one of those acts to someone? Verse 5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. It's also seen in Psalm 77, 11. It says, I shall surely remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your works and muse on all your deeds. And we know in Psalm 119, verse 15, we just went through a few weeks ago, where it says, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. It's important to meditate on these things, to let them sink in, Right? Verse 6, men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. And we can see that the wording changes here a little bit, right? From a third person to a first person. Men could just be a generic term for others. You know, other people are going to speak of the power of your awesome acts, but I will tell of your greatness. Remember who's writing this? David. King David, right? What had David seen and experienced in his life? What kind of mighty acts would he be able to tell about? We know that as a young boy, he was anointed to be king, but Saul was the king, and he first had to endure that reign, which was terrible at best, right? Saul sought David's life. He chased after him. Not a very glamorous life for an up-and-coming king, right? We know that God desired a man after his own heart. So he, he therefore anointed David to be king, and David later ushers the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He captures Jerusalem. He defeats the Philistines. On and on and on. Great works that he had done in his life through God's power. But we know that David also sinned pretty big, right? With Bathsheba. We know that sin and we know the cover-up that came after that as he killed her husband Uriah or had him killed. And then we know that he had this great lament, this repentant psalm, Psalm 51, specifically um, talking about these, these things, these sins that he had committed. So we know that no doubt David had experienced maybe some of the highest highs, the lowest lows. He had experienced a lot. But you know what he decided to focus on? All of the good, right? I will tell of your greatness, the great things. You know what he could have done? He could have complained, could have told about all the horrible things in his life, he could have told about how Saul was trying to kill him and chased him. He had to wait years for 
his, his throne to come to fruition, for him to be put in the place of king. We know that great sin with Bathsheba and the murder that, that happened thereafter. He could have talked about how that was a horrible defining moment in his life and how it shaped his future to come and how all these horrible things were on him. But he didn't do that. He chose differently. He chose to pen this psalm and many others like it. They're all psalms of praise, right? We can think back on all these, uh, they're called imprecatory psalms. We, we covered some of them over the past few months. Psalms that pray for the punishment and the destruction of the evil and the wicked. You remember some of those? Talk about, uh, you know, asking the Lord to vindicate him. Psalmist talking about crushing the wicked, slaying them, destroying them, right? So it clearly shows us that David had struggles. He had losses. He had disappointments, storms in his life, right? But this collection of psalms, this last psalm that he pens is a psalm of pure praise. Do we focus on that? Do we focus on the praise of God or do we focus maybe on the negative things that happen in our life? Do we focus on the wonderful things he's done for us? Or do we maybe complain when we see, ah, I wasn't as fortunate as someone else? Or, oh, I wish my lot in life would have been a little bit different. That's certainly not what David did and not what you and I should be doing. Our life should be full of praise, living with praise for him. Amen. Verse 7, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Eagerly utter is an interesting word, right? Not begrudgingly, not, eh, maybe I'll tell somebody when I feel like it. I'll get around to it eventually. You know, the Hebrew word literally means to bubble forth or to gush out. Think of a geyser when I hear that, right? This pressure and it, it erupts and the water spews out. That's what's being talked about here, right? They shall eagerly utter, they shall spew out the memory of your abundant goodness. Do you know people like that? Do you know people that are eager to utter the great works of God? Sometimes, if we're being honest, we might kind of look at them and go, eh, those people are kind of weird. They're always talking about this great thing God did, and God did this, and God did that, and all this more. We were in prayer before service a little while ago, and there was a, a sister in there that is moving away, and she's just always telling about what God is doing in her life. Always. She's so happy. She's so joyful. She's always telling about the great things that he's doing, what he has done and what he's currently doing. And I'd say to you and I, maybe we need to be a little bit more like those people. Amen. Maybe we need to be telling of his praises a little bit more, right? Again, there's, you know, some of us kind of go, yeah, I don't know, that, that person, you know, is always talking about the, the Lord. I mean, are there worse things that people could think of us than that, right? Can you imagine if someone said that? They're always talking about the Lord. God ever said that? Has God ever said, you know, you're really talking about my majesty, my, my glory, my great works a little too much. Could you tone it down a little? It's getting a little bit too much. No, that's not what he desires. So may we bubble forth, gush out, be like a geyser that erupts and proclaims his glory, right? And the next part, and shout joyfully of your righteousness. And the word for shout is actually more commonly translated as the word sing, in Hebrew. And so to sing joyfully of God's righteousness is such an important thing, is it not? We have this whole collection of psalms that are supposed to be sung, right? Originally they were sung. Ephesians 5, 19 through 20 tells us, 
Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There we go. This should be a natural byproduct too, right? This shouldn't be forced. This shouldn't be something that we line up and we come, you know, okay, well, now we're going to sing to the Lord and everything's great. And Pastor Shane, I'm sure, can say that he's seen it a little bit. Not that he's going to point fingers, but, you know, sometimes you see people come in and they're they're just not really shouting joyfully. They're kind of just mumbling under their breath. That's not what God wants. And I understand we're all at different points in our life and our faith and our our worship experiences, and I know that that's expressed differently through different people, and, and that's okay, but I just really want you to think about the fact that we should be shouting joyfully to the Lord for what He's doing in our lives. Amen. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Maybe we could say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth sings. I think that would be fair to say. I don't want to twist Scripture, but I think we would all agree that that would be okay. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Amen? Amen. It's really a a direct quote out of uh, Exodus 34, and a few other times it's quoted almost exactly the same. If you guys want a verse maybe to meditate on or to memorize, can I suggest that that would be the one? Short, simple, but beautiful, profound, important for us to remember. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. Verse 9. And that picks up on the previous verse, and it reminds us of God's goodness to all. This is to all people, universal perspective. It's not just talking about the Israelites. It's not just talking about God's chosen people. Verse 21 later tells us, all flesh will praise him. So we think of all and everyone. We know that that's, that's open to everyone, of course, but how can we not read this and think, God is good to me? The Lord is good to all, yes, but the Lord is good to me and to you, Amen. His mercies are over all his works, it says. And you and I are one of those works, according to Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. And his mercies are all over us. His physical creation, yes, but his mercies are over me and they're over you. What are some of those mercies? How about his saving grace, the salvation that he offers? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Is that not mercy? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Is that not mercy? Tender mercies. Beautiful word. Beautiful word. And those mercies are extended to us all, right? Let us not forget that. Verse 10, as we get into the next section, the Lord is great because his kingdom is everlasting. This little section. Verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. 
Again, even the physical works, the creation itself speaks of the glory of God. They have no speech. They pour forth no words, but they speak of the glory of God. We think of a beautiful sunset. Think of going out and seeing a, a beautiful starry sky, maybe in a dark place in the desert where you can see all the stars, looks like millions of them, right? What a great testimony to God, his might, his power, his wonderful works. And verse 12 tells us to make known to the sons of man. It's one of the reasons. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they, meaning all men, are without excuse. Back to verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Many other Psalms talk about this. Psalm 10:16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Psalm 29:10, yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And again, remember that David, the king of Israel, is the one that is penning the psalm. He writes saying, your kingdom, O God, is an everlasting kingdom. He realizes that while he is a king, his kingship is temporal compared to God's kingship, which is eternal. But what's interesting here is God had actually promised to David that David would have an eternal throne. 2 Samuel 7, God instructs David that, that after he dies, he says that from his seed, he will raise up a king. He will put him on a throne. He will establish that throne. And that kingdom will endure forever. Of course, speaking of his son Solomon, and then later through Jesus, he would come through that line of, of David. So in spite of David realizing that he's got this great future ahead of him, right? And this everlasting throne, he decides to exalt God. He takes the focus off of himself and he exalts God. He praises him for his everlasting kingdom. How easy would it have been for David to not do that and to focus on himself? Again, we talked about some of the great things that he had done, what he had accomplished, of course, through the Lord who was working behind it all. But he really had some great achievements that he could have you know, put in his belt, right? To say, look at how great my kingdom is. Look what I've achieved, right? How often do we like to be the kings of our little world? Do we like to say, I'm going to rule my life? We will go back to that warning in Deuteronomy 8. We like to say, oh, look what I've got. This great job I have and all this money and I have a nice house and a car. And I did it. I did it. That's not what David does, right? He talks about God's kingdom. We know that he was king of first of Judah, just of the tribe, but then later of the 12 unified tribes of Israel, he was king overall. Again, he defeated the Philistines. He defeated and conquered Jerusalem. He ushered the ark in. So many great things that he could have been uh, really proud of, and no doubt he probably was, right? God called him a man after his own heart. There's no one else in the Bible that God says that about, right? It's probably easy to get a little prideful, a little puffed up, you know, right? Hey, I'm a man after God's own heart, you know? Get a little, get a little prideful, and it's so easy to do that. I think you and I face that same temptation today, right? So whose kingdom are we praising? Do we like to focus on our kingdom? Do we like to talk about our achievements and what we've done and the great works that we've done and what we've accomplished in our life? Or do we shift the focus onto God and talk about his great accomplishments, his great works, the great things that he has done in our life? 2 Corinthians 10.7 says, 
Rather, let him who boasts, boast what? In the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And so as we get down to verse 14 here, this, this normally would be um, the 14th letter of the alphabet. The Hebrew letter would be the, the noon or the, the N would be kind of our modern translation for it. But it's actually missing in almost all of the text. So while this is an acrostic psalm, there's actually one verse that's completely missing. If you have an NIV, you'll see maybe a little footnote under 13b, it'll, it'll show, and there's a, a verse that's in there. It's actually only found in like one scroll that was found most recently, uh, 1968, the Dead Sea Scrolls you guys are all familiar with. And we can go in a little bit deeper on that, but for the sake of time, we won't. <laughs> And so as we enter in this last section here at verse 14, we're going to see the Lord is great because he cares for his creation and for all people. Verse 14, the Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who bow down. Psalm 37, 34 has similar language where it says, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. What a great picture that is mentioned I have an almost one-year-old, and as I, I think of uh, the time that she's in right now as she's learning to walk, right, I can, I can hold her, and I, I hold her hands as she's walking. And as an almost one-year-old, you can imagine she falls almost all the time. But when I'm right there to catch her, I can hold her up. She doesn't fall completely. She doesn't hit the ground. I'm able to save her, if you will, because I'm holding on to her hands. And that's what God does for you and I. That's what it says right here. God holds our hand. So no matter what we experience, no matter what tragedies, no matter what poor circumstances, even if we fall, we will not fall completely because the Lord reaches out. He lifts us up. He sustains us. He upholds us with his righteous right hand, we're told. And then all those who bow down, it says he will raise up. And of course, we think about the New Testament in the book of Matthew. For those who exalt themselves will be what? Humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. We must come to God humbly in order that we might be exalted. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Verse 16. The word there of look to you could also be translated as to wait for you or to hope in you. It's kind of a great picture there. It says that they receive their food in due time. You know, that God is the great giver of all. And again, that's all, the righteous and, and the wicked. He sends rain on both. In due time, he will even give the wicked their food. Everything that the creation receives is from God. Whether they acknowledge it or not, everything is from God. It says that he opens his hand and he satisfies our desires. God loves to, to pour forth, to pour out blessings on his children, right? He has a desire to bless us, to care for us, and to give us what we desire. But we have to ask, of course. We are told that. But it is his great pleasure to give his children what they desire in accordance with his will. Matthew 7 says, If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give to those who ask him? Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. 
Psalm 116 echoes that. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. Righteousness speaks of his, his trueness, his justice. He's morally right, full of justice. That's going to play out in the verses below here. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, all to, call, to all who call upon him in truth. So we know that the Lord is near, but there's a little bit of a prerequisite, is there not? To all who call upon him and do so in truth. Think back to a moment to, uh, to Pharaoh as we've been studying through Exodus. And as Moses is, you know, kind of ushering in these plagues, God is doing the work, of course, but Moses ushers them in. And after experiencing these horrible plagues, Pharaoh has come a couple times and said, go back to your, your God and treat him that he may take this plague away from me. He's even gone so far as to say, I have sinned. I have sinned. Please take this plague away from me. But he wasn't calling upon the Lord in truth, was he? Because what did he do immediately after? Every time. He hardened his heart again and again. So we can call upon the Lord. Anyone can do that. But we must do so in truth. Only then will he listen to us. The Lord knows our hearts. He knows when we're just giving lip service, and he knows when we're really seeking, when we're really coming to him in truth. Verse 19, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry, and he will save them, save them. Speaking of salvation, what a, a beautiful set of promises that we see here as we wind the psalm down. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. Like the last verse, those that call upon him in truth are the ones that get the reward, that get those desires fulfilled. So here, God's people, the ones that choose to fear him, they have their desires fulfilled. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, Amen. right? And a second beautiful promise, he will hear their cry and he will save them, pointing to the salvation that would one day come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 10, verses 12 to 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Sound familiar? Sounds very similar to this psalm of praise we've been reading. Abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Whoever, it's an open invitation to any that would call upon him in sincerity and in truth, right? Verse 20, the Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Going back to God's righteousness, his justice, justness, wow, that was a little hard one, his justness. Speaking of his righteousness, our Lord not only saves us, but he keeps us. John 10, 28, the parable of the good shepherd. Jesus says, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We are kept. Hebrews 7, 25, speaking about Jesus as our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Talking about his eternal state, the fact that he lives forever. Because of that, therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If 
final verse, my mouth will speak praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his name, his holy name forever and ever. And as we close, I just have one final question as Pastor John would lovingly say. And that's simply, have you called upon him? Have you called upon the Lord to be saved? This is a psalm of praise, yes, but it's clearly pointing towards the salvation that God offers and that God provided in his son Jesus Christ for us. So have you cried out? Have you asked to be saved from your sin, from the wickedness? We know that the Lord is gracious and merciful, right? Slow to anger and abounding in love, verse 8. And the same goes for anyone that's never put their, their faith and their trust in him or anyone that has and then has maybe left and wandered away, maybe forgotten some of the great works of God, have decided to go to their own path, maybe following a golden calf, maybe leaving the Lord for something else and something better. But the Lord is patient. He's forgiving. He's abounding in love, full of graciousness. And he's ready for you to come back, to come back home. Would you pray with me, church? Father, we thank you for this evening and for this night. We thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you for these beautiful words of praise, Lord. From the pen of David, Father, thank you for your holy word that speaks to us. And Father, as we think about the greatness that you, uh, the greatness that we can't fathom, the greatness that you embody, Lord, and as we think of the mercy and the grace that you extend to us, that you've offered a way for salvation, Lord. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that hasn't responded, that hasn't cried out to you in truth, that hasn't said, Lord, save me. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Help me, Lord, to follow you. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to seek after you. Father, I pray that they would make that their prayer tonight. And again, for those that may have wandered away, Lord, we know that today is the day of salvation, that it could be any time, Lord. So would they reach out, would they cry out to you, Father, in Jesus' name.